This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From about 15 years on up, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Otis Toole. Otis Elwood Toole was born on March 5th, 1947 in Jacksonville, Florida. So let's see what was going on in the world at that time. We've talked about the late 40s a few times, but since I have skipped it some, let's have a refresher. In 1947, the world had finally seen the end of World War II. As the world began to recover, some other interesting things were going on. The United States saw how badly parts of Europe were devastated and wanted to help. George Marshall, the then U.S. Secretary of State, announced the, quote, Marshall Plan during a speech he was giving at Harvard University. He stated that it was urgent the U.S. helped Europe rebuild. The plan gave $12 billion to rebuild, modernize, and help keep communism from spreading throughout Western Europe. It was largely successful, and it solidified U.S. and Western Europe relations. The National Security Act of 1947 was signed into law by Harry S. Truman, and it was created to do some major restructuring of the U.S. military, including the creation of the Department of Defense due to World War II. The Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, was also created, which is supposed to be a civilian-based intelligence collecting group used to investigate and perform secret operations within foreign nations. 1947 was also the year that the Roswell incident happened. So those of you who aren't familiar, in July, an unknown object crashed into the desert near Roswell, Mexico. There were several witnesses that stated they saw a disc-shaped object moving quickly through the evening sky. The next morning, a ranch hand and a younger boy happened to be out on horseback moving livestock around when they found some odd metallic debris that ran down one side of a hill and back up the next hill. 
It looked as though something flying had exploded. The ranch hand stated he had heard an odd crash-like noise the night before, but it had been thunderstorming, so he didn't give it much thought. He said the material was very, very light, but tough and durable. This, of course, turned into a whole conspiracy as the government said it was a weather balloon and others said it was clearly not. Also in 1947, while the United Kingdom nationalized their coal industry, India and Pakistan gained their independence from British rule, which had lasted over 200 years. India's independence was influenced by Gandhi's efforts and nonviolent resistance. Also, Israel became an independent Jewish state after thousands of Jews were displaced with no homeland after the war. The United States Air Force captain and World War II veteran Chuck Yeager was the first to break the sound barrier. Bell Laboratories invented the transistor. The classic movie Miracle on 34th Street premiered. The first of the Dead Sea Scrolls were uncovered in a cave and so much more. There really was a lot going on in just that one year. So this was the atmosphere of the world when Otis was born. Now his life story is so bizarre it is really kind of hard to believe. So buckle in folks, this gets graphic, disclaimer, disclaimer. Otis's parents were Bill and Sarah Toole. Bill, or William Henry Toole, was born in August of 1906 in Lyons, Georgia, which is nearly halfway between Macon and Savannah, off of the main highway between the two. Bill's father died at the young age of 33. Bill also had a brother named Otis that committed suicide at 28 years old by shooting himself in the head. Sarah Cooper, Otis's mother, was born in March of 1918 in Camden County, Georgia, nearly on the line of Florida just north of Jacksonville. Now, so many sources say that his maternal grandmother was a Satanist who robbed graves in order to gather body parts to use in her Satanic rituals. Needless to say, Otis was born into a family of chaos and it is extremely doubtful that he ever really had a chance at growing up to be a productive, law-abiding citizen of this world. Otis was one of the last children to be born out of eight children total. Bill was an alcoholic who beat and belittled his children, and Otis seemed to be his favorite target. His mother was no less abusive, with the added bonus of being a religious fanatic. Otis's earliest memories are of him being sexually and incestually abused, by his own close family. He claimed that he was forced to perform oral sex on or have sex with his father's friends when he was just five years old. So he did spend quite a bit of time with his grandmother when he could, 
and she would take him with her while she gathered her ingredients for her rituals. She taught him about self-mutilation and told him that he was, quote, the devil's child. But this was still far better than being around his own mother or his siblings. According to Otis, his mother or one of his oldest sisters would dress him up in little girl's clothing and his mother called him Becky. It is also said that one of his older sisters regularly molested him. And while Otis was still very young, his father abandoned the family. And though his mother did the things she did to him, he was described as always craving her attention and wanting to be physically near her. He was soft-spoken, no doubt from being in some form of physical or mental pain more often than not. Many experts comment that Otis Toole was, quote, slow-witted, unquote, not a term I would use, and his IQ was thought to be in the low 70s. He had learning disabilities such as dyslexia and ADHD, and these made it very hard for him to learn to read and write, so he was illiterate his entire life. And then, to top it all off, Otis also suffered with epilepsy, experiencing grand mal seizures. So, due to the sexual and physical abuse he was suffering from family members and neighbors, he began running away from home and sleeping in abandoned houses. He also loved fire and became a serial arsonist from a very young age. He said that fire sexually aroused him. He loved to burn down abandoned buildings and houses and such. So by the time Otis was 10 years old, he later stated that he knew he was homosexual. Also at this age, he burned down the family's house. At 12 years old, he began having a sexual relationship with a neighbor boy. Finally finding some solace with his lover, he opened himself to his sexuality and began going to gay bars regularly, eventually dressing in drag while at these bars. This then led him to becoming addicted to gay pornography. And since he was not successful in school, he dropped out when he was just 14 years old. He began committing petty crimes and also prostituted himself out in exchange for money to live on. And it was around this time when Otis committed his first murder. He says a local salesman noticed him and picked the teen up in his car. He then attempted to rape him. Toole ultimately ran that man over with his own car, killing him. Otis Toole's first official arrest was for loitering at the age of 17. Once released, he began living the life of a drifter, a nomad, wandering around the southern United States. He was extremely antisocial and was very impulsive, setting fires to help feed his sexual desires. He supported himself by panhandling and prostituting himself. So that was Otis's childhood. I know there's not a lot of extended information, but there's still a lot going on here. So where do we begin? 
we saw that his paternal grandfather died in his 30s, but of what? We don't know. With him being that young, I just can't imagine it was due to natural causes. We also know that his uncle committed suicide in his late 20s, but why? We also don't know. But what we can gather is that perhaps there were some mental health issues on his father's side of the family. Bill, his father, was an abusive alcoholic. It could be possible that Otis's father was just demonstrating behaviors and disciplinary techniques that he himself had witnessed or endured from his own upbringing. That is generally the case. And we really know nothing about Sarah, Otis's mother's background, other than she was fanatically religious, supposedly. And if she truly was, it's no wonder, considering her mother was apparently a Satanist. I went to my usual genealogy sites to get his grandmother's name, but there was no parent information for Sarah that I found. I did find a couple of places where distant relatives of Otis's were posting messages to each other with ideas and theories, but none of them could agree on what the grandmother's name was, so unfortunately I can't verify whether or not she really was a Satanist. So we will just have to assume that the information is correct and she in fact practiced it. So for those of you that aren't familiar, Satanism can be interpreted in a few different ways. Most probably think about Anton LaVey and his Satanic Church, but he didn't, quote, invent his version of Satanism until 1966, and Otis's grandmother would have already been long practicing before that. And there are really two different beliefs. There is atheistic Satanism, which is just the belief that Satan is a symbolic representation of certain human traits. And then there's theistic Satanism, where they believe that Satan is in fact an actual godlike deity and they view him as sort of their father. We don't know which his grandmother believed, but the general idea is that she rejected the Christian God and used ritual magic. This would explain her needing items for rituals, and they do often either sacrifice a living animal or use the remains of one for their ceremonies. And if she took Otis with her to rob graves for bones and whatnot, that would mean that she was using human remains. For Otis to witness this at such a young age would definitely make a huge impact. So to get into the child psychology, and as far as attachment and relationships go with children, the importance of a child's close relationship with a caregiver is critical. Through this bond, children learn when and when not to trust other people, how to regulate their own emotions, and how to interact with society and really the whole world. They develop a sense of what is safe and what is dangerous and come to understand their own values as they mature into their own individuality. When a child cannot count on that level of relationship, that it is unpredictable or unstable, 
children very quickly learn not to rely on or trust other people to help them. Then, if the caregiver abuses or exploits the child, the child will begin to believe that they are at fault, that they are bad and the world is a horrid place. Most children who are abused or neglected have a very difficult time developing healthy and strong attachments. Those kids then go on to show a much higher sensitivity to stress. They have a hard time controlling or expressing their emotions and very well could act out violently or at the very least highly inappropriately to life situations. And many go on to have problems with authority figures and so on. And that's just the emotional damage. So when a child grows up in an environment where they are under constant stress and are often very scared, their immune system can take a hit and not develop normally. Or when confronted with a very normal level of stress, The person will display really high levels of stress or have extreme anxiety symptoms. Abuse of any kind can also stunt the development of the brain, the nervous system, possibly making it to where the brain just doesn't develop to its full potential. And at the extreme of this spectrum, you have children that will dissociate or disconnect to try to cope with complex trauma. According to Counseling Today, it is something else when you try to understand and help survivors of incestual abuse. Children who have experienced sexual abuse committed by close relatives be it a parent, sibling, or close extended family, have a particularly difficult time. They have psychological symptoms and often have physical injuries depending on the age of the assault and where on the body it occurred. The survivors often experience depression, self-loathing, feeling contaminated, worthless, helpless, and deep shame. And one of the more troubling aspects of incest is what they call, quote, trauma bonding, where survivors connect the horrific views of their abuser. They associate the abuse with a distorted form of caring and affection that later negatively affect their relationships. They often get into abusive relationships. There have been studies that show incest survivors who were eroticized early in life go on to have very disrupted adult sexuality. The study showed that they began having sexual intercourse outside of the incest at a much younger age. They had a much higher number of sex partners and they were much more likely to commit adultery and engage in sex for money. This shows that they go on to live a cycle of re-victimization. It's basically a confusion between voluntary and involuntary participation in sex. Now I could cite you many, many official sources that all say the same thing and we all know it to be true. 
Otis had a very complex and traumatic childhood that unfortunately set him up for how he lived the rest of his life. Otis was physically, emotionally, and sexually abused by both strangers and his own family from his earliest memories. He was, from the beginning, exposed to deviant and criminal behavior, and that is all he ever knew. So let's get back into his story. What Otis was up to or where he was from 1966 to 1973 is not immediately clear. But in 1974, 27-year-old Otis was living in Nebraska. At around that same time, 24-year-old Patricia Webb was shot and killed. She was working in an adult book and cinema store. The assailant cut the phone line, came into the store, took 51 bondage-themed adult magazines, $30 in cash, and Patricia with them. They then shot her multiple times and left her under a haystack in a field where she was found almost three days later. The police suspected Otis, and they still do, though they had no immediate proof, and Otis certainly wasn't going to stick around, so he fled to Colorado. Months later, a man that fit Otis's description walked into a massage parlor in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where one woman was stabbed and her throat was cut. The man then raped, stabbed, and shot the other woman. Both were then set on fire, but the second girl survived and was able to describe the man that attacked them. She said he was about six foot two, around 195 pounds, and clean shaven. Soon after the murder in Colorado Springs, 31-year-old Ellen Holman disappeared from Pueblo, Colorado, shot three times in the head, and dumped near the Oklahoma border. Authorities do believe Toole was the murderer, and shortly after this, Otis fled back to Jacksonville, Florida by hitchhiking. When Otis was 28 years old, he married a local Jacksonville woman who was 25 years older than him, though the marriage was short-lived. Just after three days, she discovered he was gay and she left him. When asked about it later, Otis said that the marriage was just a front to try to hide his sexual identity. So while working in a local soup kitchen, Otis Toole met his future crime partner and lover, the infamous Henry Lee Lucas, in 1976. At this point, Otis was 29 and Henry was 40. They became nearly inseparable almost immediately. Now, without going into great detail, here's a very brief overview of Henry Lee Lucas. He was born on August 23, 1936 in Blacksburg, Virginia. He was the youngest of nine children. His parents were Anderson and Viola Lucas. His father's nickname was, quote, no legs, due to a railroad accident that had severed his legs. 
He was no longer able to keep his job and he decided to make alcohol illegally. Both of Henry's parents became severe alcoholics. The large family shared a one-room log cabin and Viola ruled with an iron fist. Disgusted with her husband, she would physically abuse him and her children. To make extra money, Henry's mother prostituted herself. His father introduced him to alcohol at a very young age and his mother introduced him to sex. She would also force him to watch her have sex with her clients. She sometimes made him wear women's clothing, but her wrath and his subsequent beating with a wood plank to the head left young Henry in a coma for three days and he was only eight years old. Needless to say, Henry had a rough start as well, and the two had much in common. Henry moved into Otis's mother's house where Otis was living, as well as nine other family members. At the time and for a while, the pair worked together at a roofing company. Henry met Otis's niece, 11-year-old Becky, and he began a relationship with her. She was 11. He was 40. So Otis and Henry claimed later to have joined a cannibalistic satanic cult called, quote, the Hands of Death in the Florida Everglades. All of the initiated members of this cult had to drink dead man's blood and eat pieces of his flesh before the remains of the body were then burned at an altar. Lucas later stated Otis's preferred M.O. for killing was to crucify his victims, then barbecue and eat them. It is important to note that Otis never technically admitted to doing this. Sometime after, the trio, Henry, Otis, and Becky, left Florida and began traveling west, supposedly murdering over a hundred people as they went. Henry said he would find someone, almost always a girl that caught his eye. He would then grab her, stab her repeatedly until she was dead. He would then have sex with the body and when he was finished, he stated occasionally Otis would cut off a piece of the remains, cook it and eat it. Henry said seeing Otis cannibalize victims disgusted him completely and eventually he and Becky ditched Otis. Otis, enraged, went back to Florida and Henry later went on to murder Becky. In 1981, Otis's mother died from heart failure. Not long after, his sister, Drusilla, Becky's mother, died of a drug overdose. Otis proceeded to burn down his mother's house again. Two months later, in July of 1981, six-year-old Adam Walsh, son of the now-famous John Walsh from America's Most Wanted, was taken from a Sears store in Florida. So this is where I have to throw down another disclaimer. This part is rough. I have to advise you. Adam's mother had taken him with her to the Hollywood Mall in Hollywood, Florida, which is just barely north of Miami in southern Florida. They both entered the store. 
She left Adam at an Atari video game display to ask a sales associate about a lamp that was on sale. There were apparently a small group of boys all around this display. She stated she was gone for just a minute or two and when she returned to the Atari display, all of the boys were gone, including Adam. An employee told her that there had been an argument amongst the boys about whose turn it was and a guard demanded that they leave. So all of the boys went out a different exit than the one Adam and his mother had entered and it is believed that the other boys wandered off, leaving Adam alone. His mother had him paged over the intercom and kept searching for him. After an hour and a half, the police were called. However, Adam was just gone. Two weeks later, his decapitated head was found in a drainage canal beside a Florida turnpike in Vero Beach, about 130 miles north of Hollywood, Florida. The medical examiner determined that Adam had died from asphyxiation and that it appeared that he had died a few days before his head was found, meaning he was alive for a few days before he was killed. The rest of his body was never recovered. The case went unsolved for some time, but it was then first thought that Jeffrey Dahmer himself was the one that killed little Adam. He had recently landed in Florida after being discharged from the army and he was too ashamed to go home. Jeffrey was homeless and sleeping on the beach around that time. Jeffrey's own father actually called the America's Most Wanted hotline and two others said that they saw Jeffrey at the mall on that day but it is now believed that Jeffrey actually played no part in Adam's murder. A big contributing factor for this is that Jeffrey was always completely forthcoming about every single one of his murders, never denying any of them and completely denied having anything to do with Adam's murder. And Otis Toole later confessed, I'll give you the details he gave, but I want to warn you again, this is rough. Otis said that he saw Adam waiting just outside the Sears and lured him to his car he was driving at the time, saying he had candy and toys. He said once Adam got into the car, he began to drive north toward Jacksonville. There were witnesses that placed Otis in the area at that time. Otis said as they drove, Adam began to panic so Otis punched him, but it only made Adam more frantic. So he stated he pulled over, he beat Adam until he was unconscious, then continued driving north. He said once he realized Adam was still alive, he strangled the young boy with the seatbelt, carried him out of the car, and removed his head with a machete. He said he dumped the head in the drainage canal and took the rest of the body back up to Jacksonville where he put it inside of an old knocked over refrigerator and incinerated the remains. And get this, the police legitimately 
lost the blood-stained carpet retrieved from the car. They then lost the machete that was found in the car. Then they eventually lost the whole car. No, I'm not kidding. So some believe that Otis didn't murder Adam as the notes from his confession make it seem like he was being led to specific answers and that he really didn't have entirely accurate information. But unless they find the missing carpet machete car, then I guess we'll never know for sure. On January 12, 1982, around six months after Adam's death, Otis locked a man that he had apparently been having a sexual relationship with in a boarding house that they had been staying in. He then set that boarding house on fire. He later stated that they had had an argument and it made Otis angry. That man survived for a week, but he ultimately succumbed to his injuries in the hospital. In 1983, Toole was finally arrested for an unrelated arson in Jacksonville. He was ultimately sentenced to 20 years in prison, but while there, Toole confessed to killing the man he had trapped in the boarding house. The authorities were able to get Toole to sign a confession. Once Otis Toole was in jail, the confessions began to spill out of him like blood. He said that he shot people in the head, he kidnapped people and raped them for days, he cannibalized their flesh. His depravity knew no boundaries. An interesting tidbit, it has been said that Otis occupied a prison cell next to another infamous serial killer, Ted Bundy. For the confessed murders that they could prove, he would receive another life sentence. He spent his time in prison working on his appeals and recanting, then reconfessing, only to recant again various murders that he was suspected of. Then, on September 15, 1996, at the age of 49, Otis Toole died at a Florida state prison of cirrhosis of the liver. So guys, was Otis Toole born to kill? Or was he conditioned to? It's hard to say, but my instincts tell me he might have been born with some kind of latent issue. But what he was exposed to and what he had to survive in his childhood conditioned him to be the murderer he became. Did he kill the around 100 people he confessed to? No one knows but him and he's dead. I'd have to say that he most likely didn't, that he just enjoyed the attention that he got from everyone. Again, documentation of his interviews make me think that he was sort of handheld or guided in the information he gave that would match him up with a particular murder. But make no mistake, he was a serial killer and he did cannibalize some of his victims. So Otis's behavior was largely determined by the people around him, meaning his family and the likes of Henry Lee Lucas. From the beginning, he was surrounded by sexually deviant, criminal, and deplorable family members, and they all took advantage of him from earliest memory. 
he was introduced to full sexual conduct at just five years old, and most likely it started before that. And then there's his grandmother teaching him about self-mutilation and grave robbing. He quite literally had no positive role models around him that he could look up to or model his own behavior around. None. So you take a child who is influenced by these adults, abused and raped by his own family and others under all of his circumstances, exactly how was he supposed to turn out? Now I'm not suggesting that he couldn't help it. He knew that killing was wrong or he wouldn't have taken steps to conceal his crimes. But as we went over with the analysis of his childhood, he really stood very little chance of growing up to be a normal person by any stretch of the imagination. I have no sympathy for him, but when you are a small child and you are introduced to, say, sexual themes long before your brain is even developed enough to process such intense feelings and experiences, well, it puts a big mental scar right at that moment that will never heal. So while I don't have sympathy for him, I do have empathy for him in his childhood. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring the podcast. It takes many, many hours and a lot of work to gather the info, but I love it. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every one of you, as I know that you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.